Hey, it's New Classical Tracks. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute and leave us a rating or review on your podcast app. Thanks. Every 10 years or so, violinist Hilary Hahn takes a year off, a sabbatical, from performing. It's a way for her to remove herself from the whirlwind of professional music making and reevaluate what's working and what's not working. When she began her most recent sabbatical in September of 2019, she had no idea of the world changing pandemic and subsequent closures that were ahead. She'd always thought, as a creative person, that she would always find some creative outlet if she found herself unable to perform turned out it really is playing on stage with an orchestra for an audience that fills her tanks. The absence of that emotional outlet wasn't her only loss during the pandemic. She said she'd also lost her connections with colleagues around the world, her sense of self as a musician, and her confidence. Hilary Hahn shared the story of the bumpy road to her new album in the liner notes, And she dove a little deeper with me in the conversation you're about to hear on new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Valerie Kaler in for Julie Almacher. I'm so glad to be talking to you today. Thank you for taking the time to meet with me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I was so intrigued by the introduction you wrote for your new album. It was very honest, very personal, and it revealed a kind of vulnerability that artists haven't always shared with their audiences. Do you feel like the pandemic has made you, had made all of us a little more open about that vulnerability? Well, that's a big question, but I I think that um, if I were to sum up my answer, the thing that was a huge change in how I looked at how we communicate as artists with, with our audiences and with our fellow musicians is the project I do called 100 Days of Practice, where I share my practice and then I see, I read the comments and I realized the, the first time I did it, I realized that there was a certain relationship to practice that was very vulnerable. <laughs> and when people saw that that's normal also for a professional, they felt much more connected to um, their own practice. And that's what kind of cued me into the fact that there is an element of um, finality to how a lot of things are presented in our field that we learn is the way to do it, but actually it's about people. (laughs) And the music is an art form about emotions. And when we don't tell the stories about the emotions, we don't tell the stories about the people. So instead of looking at history, looking at the facts, looking at scores for the details and all the things that are written, like, oh, this is supposed to be piano or this is presto or you know the facts composers write the facts to give the impression of what they're going for so 
I just have, over the course of my career, increasingly um, taken on board the gesture, the emotional gesture of things, and really focused on the authenticity of communication. I've also learned that from colleagues who could see that in trying to collaborate, I was not being entirely um, myself. I wasn't completely open. (laughs) And they said, you can open up more. I know you have more. <laughs> you can open. I will I will be here. I will catch you. <laughs> if anything happens, I will catch you. But just play from play from your instincts and play from your heart. And so I felt always more empowered to dive into the the why behind things and the emotional connection. And during the pandemic uh, initial phase of the pandemic, um, I was actually doing a bunch of practice, and then I wound up, when I realized that my first season after my sabbatical was going to be largely canceled because of the lockdowns and the quarantines and all the blockages on travel and stuff, um, I wound up shelving the practice and making my daily practice be about learning about the different voices within classical music and within the field of performance that don't feel heard and what does it take to build a truly inclusive and representative career? What does the field need for the future in order to be able to hear the voices that we don't listen for sometimes that we need to be listening for? So I took a lot of cues from a lot of uh, personal storytellers I just realized that, um, well, the arts are the emotional document of our times. The things that are written during a phase like a pandemic, a phase, a global phase of history, they are important to play in the moment and to keep playing. It's important to tell those stories. So I think that's why I decided to tell the story that I told um, in the liner notes, because I could just tell the story of the pieces, (laughs) which is enough. Um, That's what I was really excited about, to do the project. And I really grappled with, do I tell this personal side? Or is it too self-centered? Is it helpful? Is it distracting? And I decided that even though it was a little bit different to tell it, it was, in this case, something that needed to be told. If I didn't explain what led to the album and why that energy is in the album, then the moment where I made that transition in my musical life would sort of get lost in the current. Referencing the sabbatical you just mentioned, you said you take these occasional timeouts from performance to rethink the structure of your life and work. What kind of things did you notice or rethink? What changed? How do these changes show up in your performance now? What I try to do when I take a sabbatical is just clear the decks. I don't have any work planned. I don't have a special project I'm going to work on. It's not really a working sabbatical. I just take everything out and often I kind of fall apart a little bit at the beginning of the the break Mm -hmm. because... So many structures have been holding me up, and then I take the structures out, and I'm like, whoa, all the pieces just fell to, fell to the ground for a little bit. So I did go through a bit of a process of clearing out some residual um, 
I guess, uh, like junk <laughs> from my system. And then that took a couple of months. And then um, this particular time, then I started looking at my my projects and my work and comparing that to how I would structure my day when I didn't have any particular work. Because this is a lifelong career. When you work in this field, it's the goal is life, <laughs> for life. So you you're going to mature, you're going to experience things, you're going to evolve as a person for your whole life. And then also as an artist, you're going to go through that same process. But they can go in divergent directions without you realizing it. And then at some point you wake up, you don't know quite why you're doing what you're doing or where you are. And you don't know how to get back. So I just try to stop from time to time. Maybe once every 10 years, I take a big break and I just let everything settle and I see where everything settles. If everything is looking exactly the same to me at the end of the sabbatical, then great. I, I just continue. And if I realize that something I thought was important actually doesn't occupy my thoughts very much when I'm not constantly engaging with it, then maybe something else has room to come in and say, hey, I'm a priority. <laughs> work away, Find out a way to work me into your schedule too. So that's that way with my, with my life, with my work, and I just try to overlap those as closely as possible so that I can stay as an integrated artist and authentic person throughout my, my career. And that's what the sabbatical was about. And this time I couldn't possibly have predicted how I would learn what I learned. But at first I thought that the pandemic experience stopped my sabbatical. And then I realized that it brought me to such a different place than I expected. It was exactly what the purpose of the sabbatical was, except it lasted about twice as long <laughs> and the path wasn't under my control. But that was that's okay because the whole idea is to figure out, you know, what's next. One of the things you said that happened after the end of your planned sabbatical was that the concert halls were all being shuttered and you found yourself at this unexpected place in uncharted territory. And that resulted in you not trusting your playing. You said, I didn't trust my playing, didn't trust myself. Was this lack of trust isolated? Was it only at play in the music, in your practice or performance? Or was slash is there something larger happening around trust in general, institutions, community, leaders, etc.? Hmm. That's a that's a good point. I think it's it's um yeah, I mean, I think trust is a bigger social issue. I know about myself um, that it was that I was kind of in a bit of a vacuum. I was I was working in solitude for so long in a very communal profession, and I didn't know where I'd landed within myself, and I didn't then know what I had to give. So that was, for me, the, the disconnect. I didn't know where my playing was. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like if you don't have a mirror for 2 years and then you are going out and having a photo shoot and you're going to see in the camera when they show you what the photo looks like you're going to see what you look like for the first time in 2 years. It's that's that's kind of what it is. Um I didn't have a mirror and I didn't know is this something I can do or is it something I can't do? Uh, something I should do, something I shouldn't do. Um, so for me, the trust was unfamiliarity. I was in a new zone. I had been my own 
coach and my I was following my own instincts all that time. And I don't have a particular coach, but I, I use every um, opportunity with colleagues to learn more and sort of enhance how I, how I play. So I was also not sure that I was my own best teacher over those two years. Um, and as I found time and time again in various small ways, and this time in a big way, I have to trust myself. If I don't trust myself, nothing flows so whether I think that <laughs> think that I'm doing the right thing or not, I have to trust it, and I have to go with it. And also trust other people. Sometimes you have to just put your trust in other people and know that you can trust them, not blindly, but, you know, if you have people that you can offload some, some weight onto, you can trust them to help carry that, carry that weight with you. And that's what happened in this case, and it was really rewarding. And I found, not to, not to stay in the negative zone, <laughs> I actually um, found that that process of questioning and then um, arriving was life-changing. It's just so validating and also so heartwarming to see that we don't, you know, we— we all struggle against limits and against limits we put on ourselves. And sometimes those limits aren't really real. <laughs> sometimes we're capable of a lot more than we think we are. And making a decision to walk into a situation where you are testing your own capability instead of being forced to test your own capability is super empowering. Um, and I had a choice and I chose a direction that wound up um, showing me who I was. You were almost ready to not do this recording project, but conductor Andres Orozco Estrada, with whom you have worked frequently, kind of talked you off the ledge. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. Um, yeah, I have these. Um, I have these colleagues who I really trust, and when I'm working with them on a project, I really need to be open to them and to their experiences and. We really need to partner. And so this particular project was a partnership with him. It was a partnership with the orchestra. But he and I go way back, and we've worked through some difficult things together. Um, there was one time I was I was really sick. We were doing a concert. We were playing Prokofiev one in Zurich. And I was so sick I couldn't get out of bed. And I still wanted to do the concert because I was there. I was like, I'm, I'm here. I'm in the hotel down the street. Can't get out of bed today. I want to save my energy for tomorrow. Is there any chance— we can save this. And he said, I got it. I'll rehearse them. You rest. I was like, okay. <laughs> I showed up the next day. Perfect. It was perfect. All the tempo transitions. He knew exactly what I was going to do. We hadn't even rehearsed it before he did the rehearsal with the orchestra. But like the tonal stuff, the phrasings, the articulations, the impetus of the piece, it was all there. And I think that's the moment. That was a pivotal moment for me. I was like, aha. Aha, uh-huh, this colleague, this colleague is something special. So um, there's a sort of telepathy that has to happen in these these great collaborations. And to do that, you have to um, be willing to work through some things together. And so um, it doesn't just happen out of the blue. And so, yeah, that was a situation where I could actually just call him up and say, like, everything that was on my mind. I was like, this is what's going on for me. I don't know what to do. I think I'm going to do this. And... I'm so torn. 
I don't know which direction to turn. And he talked me through it. And um, he was like, if you, you know, you don't have to, you can, you can cancel it if you want to cancel it. If you don't, we're here for you. You know, you just have to trust us and we'll help you and you'll be fine. <laughs> I know you can do this, he said, but you have to know you can do it. And it's completely fine to cancel it. And we can also just run the mics and not use the recording if you don't want to. But come make music with us. Like, that's what it would be. If you if you show up, we'll just make music. I was like, you know what? Hmm. I don't know. That sounds pretty idealistic. And then I was then I gave it some more thought. I was like, you know what? Yeah. Why not? Why not? Let's give this a go. That sounds pretty ideal, actually. What a gift from Andres Orozco Estrada and and the Frankfurt Radio Symphony, just to have that freedom to say no or to see what happens. What a gift. Yeah, and I think I could have that conversation and I could make that call because um, because we're friends and, you know, you can't always speak openly with people about what's going on. But I found that when I do, um, it tends to lead to a very authentic place. So um, I had a similar conversation also with my manager around the same time, and she and I work together on everything. And we're really, yeah, we're really a team. And she, she also said, it's completely understandable and fine <laughs> to cancel I will back you up on that if you need to cancel the project. But also, why not give it a try? You know, I'm sure that you can do it if you get there. I'm sure it will happen. It'll be fine, but totally understandable if you don't do it. And I think this also shows that I am um, I'm someone who likes to know why I do things. And I also am someone who, if told that I must do something, doesn't really like to hear that. <laughs> so being told that I could cancel it, it would be fine if I canceled. I was like, oh, but now I could actually maybe go. <laughs> so they both know me pretty well, I guess. And they were like, well, just like give her freedom and she'll find her own way. When it came to finally <laughs> doing the performance, you said that playing the Dvorak Concerto which opens your album, playing the concerto was a coming home. Can you talk more about what you mean by that? And was there a particular place you can point to where you where you really felt that in your body? I would say that being away from concerts, I had always thought that there was probably something else. I have a, a large creative drive, so I have a lot of creative hobbies, and I thought there was probably something else that I do that if anything, reason preventing me from performing, such as getting injured, or I don't know, if something happened and I couldn't play for a while, I would find an outlet in the arts. I was sure of this. And then concerts didn't happen and nothing matched up with the experience of performing. There's something about it that cleans me out <laughs> in all the best ways. I can express myself. It's an outlet. Um, otherwise, I feel like I'm. I become a sort of pressure cooker of emotions and experiences. I don't have anywhere to put it. So then I kind of start to implode rather than um, release. And I realized that there was nothing else that really did all of that for me. Um, and I realized this as I was unable to perform because of various circumstances. <laughs> so what a time to realize it and then not have it. But that really clarified for me why I perform and it's not a selfish thing. It's actually a connection thing. And 
it's a way of processing life that other people are also somehow tapped into at the time that I'm doing it. And we're all processing together and we're all joined together and all enjoying things together. I mean, the the joy of playing together again was like being away from your home country and then you come back. And um, or if you have like a very large, lively family that you haven't seen for two years and then suddenly you're all in the room together, that kind of thing. So that was the homecoming aspect. There was something that I had missed that I hadn't been able to replicate, and suddenly we were all in it together. It was really great. The energy in the room was so dimensional, and they were also returning to a format they hadn't had for a while. They didn't have to sit apart from each other. Um, In the course of the project, they wound up um, returning to their home concert hall, the Alta Opa. They were already working in the radio hall and all of that, but the return to the big stage with the home audience was really um, meaningful in ways that I don't think we had challenged before. So it was just nice to be, be able to be part of that as well. Cadenzas and concertos, those places where the soloist plays solo, generally uh, very virtuoso takes on snippets of the theme, not unusual, but usually they happen at the end of a movement, so you have some time to kind of get your yips out, but Ginastero does not give you that luxury. No. (laughs) What is that like to just... (laughs) No, the conductor, sorry, the composer just launches you right into the total intensity of, of playing. But you know you can get your jitters out in the hardest part of the piece, too. (laughs) Although, I have to say, what he puts in the cadenza is not the hardest. It just continues to unspool one one thing after another that challenges your sense of relationship to the instrument. But um, the cadenza that he writes really sets the entire piece up, much like an orchestral tutti sets up a movement of a concerto in an older style, like the Brahms concerto, for example. That large orchestral tutti at the very beginning introduces the first movement and um, the sort of the tonality of the entire piece. That's what Hinesera does with, and there are a couple different ways to say his name. I'm acknowledging, like I'm saying Hinesera, but there's Ginesera, Ginesera, and one is more accurate than the other, and I'm choosing the non-accurate one. But um, Hinesera actually goes through a lot of the thematic things he's going to do in the entire piece, a lot of the um, dynamic range, the emotional range, the pacing, the arc. It's all in that first cadenza, which is basically a piece in and of itself. From there, he kind of backpedals a little bit and investigates the details of what he laid out in the cadenza, really explores these ideas that he introduced. And he does it in a way that is um, 
It challenges the listener emotionally and then resolves those challenges. So I think sometimes when we hear music we don't know or we have a musical moment that's uncomfortable as a listener, we want to turn away. But that's our invitation to stay there until the composer shows us what we need to know about ourselves. And then the composer will transition us out of that. The, the point is to feel something and have some space to feel that. Then, in a guided way, <laughs> move forward into a different state you might not be able to get yourself into if you were confronting that all alone. And so there's a community in how the emotions are presented, and that's how he does it in his concerto. That third movement starts with what kind of feels like a South American rainforest. And it asks a lot of the orchestra, too. There's a lot going on there. Very virtuoso for for the band. Yes, and virtuoso and whispered at the same time, which is almost harder than just going all out. Uh, there is a lot of virtuosity in the gestures. It's completely gestural. It's very abstract. It's like an impressionist painting. And when you step back from it, you, you really see what it is that, that he's doing. But when you get into the details, it's fascinatingly complex, super intricate, really delicate and fun because the way the notes are put together, the way the gestures feel to play, um, you feel like you own the instrument in a way you never did before when you figure it out and you can do it. And I can see that in the orchestra as well, looking around, that these are isolated, difficult licks. But then in the end, um, it's like playing a game, a very advanced game of um, jumping in and, and precision, but with these abstract gestures. So in a sense, it, it's very complicated. And in a sense, it's just about if you start the gesture in the right place, then it flows and kind of like you, you toss it off and it's really satisfying. It's super fun. And the sounds are really engaging as well because it's in stereo when you're playing it. All these sounds are coming at you from different places. And it sort of puts you in a certain space where um, you're really attuned to everyone. You describe Pablo de Sarasate's Carmen fantasy as finicky. That's an interesting word. <laughs> what does it mean in your understanding? Where do we hear that? What is it like to play finicky? Well, you think you have it, and then you start to practice it the next day, and you're like, where did it go? <laughs> so in that sense, it is, it is finicky. I mean, you playing it, you need to work around the notes physically. You... If you play straightforwardly through the notes, you're not in the right position for the next thing. And um, I'm just speaking like purely physically on the instrument. You have to play with a lot of accuracy, but also with a lot of uh, spatial freedom around the instrument. And that's really a complicated combination. 
It's like walking on a, a balance beam. That isn't just one balance beam. You're walking and then suddenly you're over in another area on another balance beam and then suddenly you're back. So you have to be ready at any moment to switch, switch your balance. And at the same time that the music is very free, you're trying to be a singer. And a virtuoso violinist at the same time. There are aspects of the piece that are arrangements from other instruments in the orchestra. Yet, Sarasate knew the instrument perfectly and knew how to position everything and how to arrange everything so that you can do all of that musically. So to never lose sight of the purpose of the technique while staying completely ready for the technique to change at any moment, that's what's finicky about it. Only until you start performing it. <laughs> then when you perform it, all the flair comes in. No more finicky, only flair. You said that your collaboration with the Frankfurt Radio Symphony was different in the Sarasate. It was the ultimate opera collaboration. How was mm-hmm. it different than your interaction in the concertos, say? Well, we were all very aware of the opera because we've all done it, um, except for me. I haven't done the opera, but Andres, the conductor, he's he's conducted the opera, knows it well. He was trained as a vocalist early on. And um, the orchestra has played, a lot of them have played the opera as the opera orchestra. So that way of attacking style was different because a lot of the the moments in that piece are stylistically dominant. And the music just enforces the style. So the way they turned on a dime to do different styles, different rhythms, different um, flexibility is how they would work with a singer. And it's something that I really enjoy myself as a violinist. To be able to be in the middle of that dynamic is, is really cool. And here it was literally from an opera. So I got the feeling of what it must be like <laughs> to be in the middle of an opera. Violinist Hilary Hahn. Her new album with conductor Andres Orozco Estrada and the Frankfurt Radio Symphony is called Eclipse. I'm Valerie Kaler, sitting in for Julie Almacher, and this is New Classical Tracks from APM, American Public Media. (laughs) ¶¶ 